0: Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. This event was recorded in front of a live audience on July 28, 2015, at WOMR in Provincetown, Massachusetts. The theme for the evening is Speechless. Mm -hmm.
1: Reba Blau. Reba Blau on the mic. I'm a member of the um, what's it called? The me generation, the selfish generation, and somehow the selfish generation has turned into the sandwich generation, which is what you call right karma. <laughs> so, selfish generation—it's all about me. My parents like do everything for my whatever my future, and all of a sudden, I have very small children and uh, you know, an aging mom. So it's karma, I know, I accept my fate, um, but I am hoping that the theme is based on alliteration because I have a good one, which is selfish, sandwich, speechless, right? So anyway, so so my the ages in my family are all mixed up. I'm 45, just adopted a two-year-old. And so the exhaustion has made me think at night about the ages in our family. And my dad, who would be like 100 now, he was born in 1918 and married a mom, uh, a, mom, a mom, my mom, who was 25 years younger. So he had a previous wife who was more his age, and he had a daughter with her, so she's much older than me. And that, uh, my sister uh, married a man who's 20 years older than her. So I have a brother-in-law who's 82 and I'm 45 and I have a two-year-old and my mom is younger than my brother-in-law. So they're both aging, he's losing his hearing, and my mom has babesiosis, which is this horrible thing, and I hope you don't get it, it's tick-borne illness, and so it's a v- crippling, basically. So she feels like she can't move, she's, she's exhausted, she can't write, which is horrible because every sentence begins with, and in the article that I'm writing, Um, And she can't write so she calls me obsessively all day long. She never used to do this but now she does um, because she used to be busy writing her next book. Um, And now she calls me instead and I need to take care of her because she's very sick and she's my mother. So my sister has young kids, I have young kids, Um, we are all linked to sort of much, much older people who have no idea how children are being raised these days because if we were the me generation, the kids are like the me, 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 me generation now, right? And I can admit this because my kids are the same. But this is all leading to speechless, which is, let's see, selfish, sandwich, speechless. So my sister and I, so she's much older than me, right? And her husband's much older than her. We have no idea about Instagram. We have no idea what the kids are doing. They are having these whole conversations without us having any idea. So my son is obsessed with magic cards, and he's obsessed with magic cards, and he insists that everybody around him be obsessed, equally obsessed with magic cards. You basically don't have a choice if you're around him. Um, and he has thousands of them, because, of course, you know why not? He's the mean, mean generation. So he has thousands. I know this is very bad parenting. I shouldn't buy him these things, but somehow, and my mother does this too. She, th- she says she doesn't, but she does. She buys him these huge packs of meaningless paper that is very meaningful, to that are very, all very meaningful to him. And he decodes these things and plays with other kids. So he's at his cousin's house. I'm with my sister. We're drinking wine and eating shellfish, probably. And my mother's there, like, describing how she feels like she's living in cement and can't write her article. And they're playing magic cards, and suddenly the f- air turns foul, and I just have the worst feeling that something is being said about me on Instagram. I just have this like, I know enough about the online world and the way the kids are acting that I know, like I'm sort of stunned into silence. And I, I like, gather my children, I, ha- I know I have to leave. And I sort of le- take the children and the c- kids are kind of muttering these things that I don't understand and texting madly back and forth. So I leave and then on Instagram shows up this thing, cyberbullying from one of the cousins against my son saying that he stole the magic cards of the cousins. So I have absolutely no idea, what do you do in this? I mean, I don't know anything about this. I know about how to take care of my aging mother. I know how to take care of my two year old. But in the middle of this, there are these 10 year old come adults who are you know, using online media um, to do these terrifying things. So of course my heart is pounding. I see this at 1130 at night. I should have been in bed two hours earlier to wake up with my two-year-old, and I, my heart is pounding, I'm ready to call Vanessa, who's an expert on social media, to find out what to do, and the whole thing is now resolved. But it was very, I was terrified that my son's reputation, I was thinking, there's no chance of him getting into college because this thing is written on Instagram, and he's now a thief on social media. You know, all his friends and their parents, because of course all of us as parents, we're looking at this stuff to try to figure out What are they doing? Oh, is that a thing, a picture of weed? I don't know, like, what is that? Is that a tree? Is it weed? I don't know what it is. And you know, we're trying to delete, it's not working. And then we're trying to like write things into the machine. And instead we're like posting stuff on their devices. (laughs) And, and like I, f- I liked a dozen very strange pictures of very strange things. I think they were sneakers. But um, I like trying to figure out how to get this off. Of course I couldn't because it was on his post. I couldn't delete it. And I'm hitting report is inappropriate, report is inappropriate. And I, I couldn't do it. I basically had to beg my sister to actually look at the devices and she did solve the problem. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> All right,
0: our second storyteller to the stage is Edie Kennedy. Woo!
2: Yes, Edie. All right, I'm Edie. Um, I'm a journalist, so like a journalist, I wrote what I was going to say. So being a journalist, you don't have to speak too much, but you do have to be able to write. If you can't write, it's not really like being speechless as much as it is like being wordless. And I became wordless. Um, Meaning, not that I couldn't write anything, but I couldn't write certain words. Um, What words you're probably thinking? Words like my, because, view, see, just to name a few. And I was studying at George Washington in D.C., and I couldn't even write two pages. And this was the end of my senior year, and... I was becoming frantic. My professors were becoming frantic. um, Since, understandably, they were trying to get me to write 10 pages about conflict in Eastern Africa, and I couldn't write 10 words. So I'd become worried, and you're probably wondering what happened. Well, I had to drop half my classes and go to see a therapist to figure out what I should do. So the therapist gave me some drugs and told me to go see more therapy. And I did that, and it helped but it didn't help that much. So did I ever write again? I did write. Um, I graduated a semester late, still wondering what I was gonna do because I was gonna become a journalist and I couldn't write, still couldn't write, my, because, see, view, those were just a couple of the words. So did it get better? Not really, but one day I was going to see the therapist in Boston I was seeing at the time to get my prescription filled, my cabinet of drugs, and I just wanted to get the drugs and go home. But the doctor who was seeing me at the time was sick. So I had to see this overeager PA who was desperate to figure me out in like the 20 minutes I was seeing her. So she sits me down, and she's like, you know, what are you in for? Like, we're in prison, and I we talking about our past offenses. This is getting, like, lower and lower, and I'm, like, trying to. <laughs> Sorry. And now, <laughs> you can just stand here with me.
3: <laughs>
2: it's okay. Or I could just. Uh, okay,
0: let's try. We're good?
2: Or I could hold it, like a crooner. Okay. Uh, (laughs) I better get extra points for this. So she's she's trying to figure me out. And all of a sudden, you know, she's like, okay, so, you know, what are you in for? And I say to her, well, I'm a journalist and I can't write. So she says, well, what's the problem? Well, I can't write a few words. And she looks up at me like the light bulb has gone off in her head. And she's like, well, it's just something you're going to have to work through. And I was like... Well, geez, fucking thanks, Doc. Something I'm going to have to work through? So I grab the scripts off her desk. I go home, take the drugs. Uh, I spend the next several months kind of scraping through, writing articles. Um, I get a couple things published in The Post, The Washington Times. But I still feel like there's something really strange about me. And it wasn't until recently I found out that Ernest Hemingway... Ernest fucking Hemingway, and I let the record show I'm swearing in front of a child, I apologize. Um, I know we're on podcast. Um, That Ernest Hemingway actually couldn't write certain words. That a number of well-known authors had trouble writing certain words. And I realized that it wasn't that I couldn't write certain words. uh, You know, I could write. That I'd been published in the Washington Post, so obviously I could write something. um, And that I wasn't wordless that, you know, it, it just made me change the perspective that I've been looking at this totally wrong. So I think that a lot of us who get caught up feel like we can't do things. It's sometimes because we're doing things differently than other people. There's a lot of, of this anxiety to fit in. I I wasn't writing like other people. I wanted to fit in. I wanted to write like other people. That was the problem. And what this poor little PA was saying to me was, you just need to write like you. Even if it's not like other people, you need to be like Ernest Hemingway and just drink a lot and get it done and just write what you're gonna write. (laughs) So I'm 23, I'm still writing. I still can't write my because view or see, Um, but I'm writing and I'm drinking, (laughs) so thank you. Kevin
0: Gallagher,
4: to the stage. So uh, if I was going to write a book about my sexual exploits, I would probably call it 40 Shades of Green, Uh, partially because I'm Irish, but the other part is because I'm pretty green when it comes to things sexual. So, tonight I want to share with you the story of my first orgy, uh, because that was a different shade of green for me that I wasn't really used to. (laughs) And you will see later how timely that move was. How unbelievably timely that move was. So, so I, I, I. Oh, it was. Uh, so let's just say that uh, I, I've never had a lot of confidence when it came to those kinds of things, and so I sort of, I, I found myself in a situation that I wasn't really prepared for. But let's like go back a little bit to college. So college was when I first came out. I came out at the very end, kind of saved it to the last minute to do. And, uh, and then that sort of went okay. But I was known in college as being the asexual wonder. I was the, I was the kid that people said, you've like really never had sex with anybody ever. Like you've never kissed anybody or anything. And it's like, no. And they were like, wow, that's like pretty unbelievable. So, uh, so there was a particular weekend when a bunch of uh, my college friends, a couple years after we graduated, we came back to Boston Uh, for a weekend to hang out and play together. And uh, we were sort of trying to figure out where we were going to go. It was Saturday night, and we were trying to figure out what are we going to do for for entertainment. Dancing was pretty much it. So there was a big discussion whether to go to the gay clubs or the straight clubs, and we all know the gay clubs have better music and better booze. Um, But most of my friends in college were straight, and so there was a lot of discussion about the straight clubs. So anyway, we... I've always been a little nervous about gay bars and that's mostly because I think there's like a sexual tension that happens at gay bars that pulsates like the music does and it makes me like really nervous uh, for some reason and I don't really know why. Well, actually, I do know why I'm a therapist. Uh, (laughs) The the reason it makes me nervous is because I'm insecure, you know, is basically the reason. And and so in my insecurity I I never really I, I never really quite know how to manage that level of insecurity. And so I just pretend that I'm not and that sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. So anyway, we end up at a couple of bars. Now These are gay bars back in the 80s, so it has like boys in underwear, dancing on the speakers. Occasionally, some of the clubs had cages with boys dancing in them, suspended from the ceiling. I actually preferred the boys caged because it made me feel less tense. (laughs) Because they were sort of managed, you know, up there. And I could just sort of look at them from afar. And so, uh, so we ended up that evening at uh, a straight dance club, uh, some big triplex on Boylston. And uh, three levels of dancing, you know, lots of gyrating going on. It was all the you know, people were dancing to the heavy beat of, of house music. And so the night ended, and my roommate from college, Curtis, he comes up to me and he goes, hey, I met some people That uh, that are going to have an after hours party. Do you want to go? And I said, sure, that sounds great, because it really met my criteria, which is my three criteria: which I'm not tired, I'm not drunk, and I'm still having a good time. So I said, why not go? So we walked over to Back Bay to uh, this apartment. It was actually a massive apartment. I don't think I've ever seen an apartment that big to this day. And you know, you're always a little nervous when you go to an after party, or at least I am, because Well, if you haven't figured out, I'm nervous a lot of the time. But, uh, but sort of like you know, you could end up at four o'clock in the morning going to someone's apartment, and there's like four people stoned on the couch watching infomercials, and like that's considered the after party. And so I walked in, and there's like people dancing, there's people drinking, there's people talking, and I thought, oh my god, this is like gonna be like a great party. And so, um, so more people came, and more people came, more people came. It was a hot summer day. A lot like today, and uh, eventually some of the guys sort of took off their shirts, and uh, that's not that unusual. Um, but then a couple of the women took off their shirts, and like that's a little more unusual. But you know, hey, I'm you know I'm Irish, you know I'm I'm cool. You know, remember my people. <laughs> you know, we are nothing. We are we are nothing loose. We are uptight and rigid. We are we. We are tense people. Even Colin Farrell is no Latin lover, even though he's good to look at. And so, uh, so people are sort of hanging out. And I, I leave the bathroom uh, at one point, and I walk out. And there's like a couple of couples making out. And that's not that weird when you're in high school. But like when you're in your 20s and 30s, it's, I think it's kind of weird to be like making out at other people's houses. And so I noticed that sort of these couples making out start sort of joining up with other couples who are making out. And they became sort of like make out clusters around the room. And then clothes started coming off. So of course, I panicked, as you could probably guess by this point. And so I didn't know what to do. So I went into the kitchen, and uh, I got a beer. I needed some liquid courage. So I like guzzle half the beer. And I'm like, okay. So I go back in the living room. And I realize that this room has six L-shaped sofas in it. And I thought, these people know what they're doing. And I, I was completely panicked. And I just stood there, speechless. And this guy comes up to me, very good looking guy, nice teeth, I remember. And, uh, and he's like, hey, he had one of those voices, hey, are you going to join in? And I said, oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> like, Yeah, I can't wait. I I just have to go to the bathroom first, you know. So I go into the bathroom, and I'm pacing. The bathroom is about this big, and I'm sort of, like, pacing like this. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? I need to floss. I don't have any any breath mints. I wore the wrong underwear. Uh, I wish I had been born Italian. You know, it was sort of like... And then this, you know, my inner Catholic nun inside me, you know, said... Kevin Patrick Gallagher, what are you doing here? Go home. So I slip out of the bathroom, and I slip out the front door, and I leave, much like our friend earlier, (laughs) defeated. I walked to a friend's house and uh, crashed on her couch uh, for the night. So in the morning, Curtis called me, and he said, what happened to you last night? I was so worried. Uh, He said, I didn't know where you went, and I said, well, you know, the whole, the whole orgy thing wasn't really my thing. I didn't really kind of know what to do. And he said, well, I mean, you could have stayed and watched. And I'm like, really? Like, really? Like, really? Like, yeah. I'm going to be the guy at an orgy with my clothes on, sitting in a chair with a beer, watching a room full of people having sex. I said, no, I said, you know, I said, I'm already a loser enough. Like, I don't really need to do that. So, I'm not quite sure that I was actually, well, I don't know if this was my first orgy. I can tell you I was at an orgy, but I'm not quite sure if an orgy is dependent on whether you participate or not.
0: so many to choose from. Okay, we're going to welcome to the stage right now Bill Cutler.
5: So last week, I was in about a hundred-year-old farmhouse when um, I had this experience where it was a thunderstorm, and I felt the room shake. I saw the flash of light and I heard the thunder all at the same time. And it was loud, it was bright, and it was really frightening. And that was actually the second time in my life that that had happened. The first time was about 27 years ago when um, I was at a different old house out in Western Massachusetts that um, uh, my wife, Lee, and I had recently bought. And we were uh, living there with our, our son, Ian, who was about a little less than a year old. And it was middle of the night, and this same it was a thunderstorm going on and this same thing happened. It was like the bed shook, the flash of light, and and the crack of, of the thunder all at the same time. And um and then there was like a, um kind of like a little bit of a burning smell and the power went up. And we didn't know what happened at the time. Nobody knew what happened at the time. Um and uh but I'm I'm actually gonna tell you what happened at the time because about three weeks later. The, uh, the fire chief in Cummington, Massachusetts, Bernie Forgier, he's a wonderful guy, Vietnam vet who is a volunteer fire department. He, after the investigation, he told us what happened, which is that the, the lightning hit the transformer outside the house. Now the transform, an electrical transformer has like 4,800 volts, 4, 4, volts of, of electricity that goes in the, that's like called the primary voltage, and that's what like travels around in those wires, that's why you don't want to touch them because they're pretty dangerous. And then it like steps down the voltage down to about 120 volts, which comes, comes into the house through the wire that comes down to your house. And so you don't, you know, the 4,800 volts, that's like for the outside world and the 120 volts is for the, for the inside world. So it turned out that in the lightning storm, the, the transformer got damaged and um, and some kind of wire got lock, knocked loose. And, um, and what, was hap- what happened was the, this, this wire with the primary voltage, Somehow touched like another wire, which sent um, this forty-eight hundred volts down through the ground system in our house, and uh, and that would like happen for like an instant, and then the wires would like heat up, and when the wires heated up, they would move apart, and then the voltage would stop, and then over time, what would happen is the the uh, um, uh, the, the wires would come back again and touch, touch together again and the process would repeat itself. And actually, because it, it wouldn't actually transmit, transmit 4,800 volts, it would actually transmit a small amount of that. But each time it happened, it would be like a little bit of like fire there and it would lay down some carbon. And it turns out that carbon is a good conductor so that the first time it happens, it was just like a little bit of voltage that came in. The next time that it would happen, there'd be a little bit more voltage that would come through. The next time there'd be a little bit more. So we didn't know any of that. And uh, I'll also just tell you that Ian and Lee are both here tonight, so a ha- <laughs> the story has a happy ending. So um, so about uh, a few days later, we had, we had actually just bought this house, our first house, baby, it was a very exciting thing, and, um, and some friends came to visit uh, that weekend, it was Memorial Day weekend, and uh, uh, our friend Eileen, who like, does a million different things at the same time, she came over and for some reason she had to do laundry. So she was doing laundry, we had a washing machine in the kitchen. And the, the uh, drain pipe, from, you know, the drain hose from the washing machine went into one of these drain pipes there, which was a copper drain pipe. And it didn't make any sense at the time, but she all of a sudden said, like, your washing machine just flooded. It was like, oh, great. you know, What else is going to go wrong here? We just had this firestorm. Now there's water all over the kitchen floor. And so, um, so I took the, the hose off, and I realized, like, well, this is weird. There's, like, a hole in the hose here. And I didn't realize at the time, but it was, the hole was, like, right where where the, the hose was like cooking over the copper copper drain pipe. And so I just said, well, there's no problem. There's like a little extra hose here, so I just cut off cut off the end of the hose and like, you know, put it back together again. That was all fine. Um, and I actually forgot to tell you the one thing. That, that the night that it happened when we sort of smelled the smoke, I went downstairs and like looked around the house and the, the one weird thing that was going on was that I had one of these old turntables, you know, a stereo, and some of you people not may not know what a turntable is. It's how you used to play music. Um, and turntables always have like little ground wire that you would like, you know, ground to the to the screw on the socket in the wall, and um, the turntable was on. <laughs> that so it was really really weird. It was like because the power had gone off and then it came back on and then the turntable was running. Uh, that was kind of weird. Um, so so anyway, um, a series of strange things happened. The phone had gone out when when the uh, when when the when the lightning hit, and uh, and we smelled the smoke. So we had to call the fire department. It was, there were no cell phones then, of course. Um, and even if there had been, there wouldn't have been any self-coverage there. So we had to like drive up to the store a mile up the road, call the fire department, and they came over, looked at it, and said, well, you know, there was, you know, something happened here, but don't worry about it, you know, the, your, your phone's out, it'll all get fixed tomorrow. So anyway, then Eileen came to visit, and then the, the week went on, and other kind of weird little things were happening. Um, and I won't tell you about all of them, but um, it kind of all came to a head uh, about 10 days later. And um it was just kind of a night like any other. Uh Lee and Ian were taking a bath together, which um yeah, that was uh oh, so uh the um uh that night we smelled fire again. It was like, oh my god, it smells like what we had before. And and this fire was happening, the fire we called we had to drive the store again, called the fire department, they came, they they uh uh they they put the fire out, which was in the kitchen, which was like a fire starting around the kitchen drain pipe. And, um, and then as the night went on, that fire got out and they couldn't figure out what was going on. And then finally, uh, fires started breaking out throughout the house, like where, where, where electricity was arcing through the different, uh, from, from, like, from like wires to the uh, drain pipes in the house. And it turned out the drain pipes were all charged. And, um, and anyway, when it was all finally over. Um, Bernie Forgier, who was the uh, uh, f- fire chief of uh, Cummington there, he had used to work for the uh, electric company. And he finally, uh, he had called the electric company and said, you've got to like, come over to this house. And they couldn't do it because they were busy someplace else. And he like, got this tool out of his truck and went up and disconnected the transformer. And it was like our house, which had been haunted, and had all these electrical fires starting all over the place, <laughs> suddenly just turned off. And by this time, Lee and I, and Ian were out sitting in the car in the driveway (laughs) and we were speechless. (laughs) (laughs) Okay,
0: let's welcome to the stage, Arthur.
6: (laughs) So there's two things to know about me. Uh, It's when I was about 13 years old. Um, First, I grew up in a very new age family, and two, I have chronic acid reflux. Both are very important to this story. (laughs) So growing up, uh, probably around 11, my family joined the sort of new age lodge that they went to and they said, do you want to go? And I said, sure, why don't we go? And so we learned all these different principles from different Native American lodges from around the Northwest. and when you turn 13, you have a coming of age ceremony. So they would say, you're now a man. And at 13, I'm like, no, i do not I'm not ready for this. Um, but everyone in the lodge gets together, and they, they give you something. Um, sometimes it's a responsibility. Um, and you have to follow through with that for, for the year. Um, and I got to see the politics of the lodge and other things like that, because there was someone who was kind of cast out of the lodge but still wanted to come. And my family wanted them to come. And the leader of the lodge didn't want them to come. They came anyway. Um, And it was this fight over this really big, um, gaudy-looking necklace they wanted me to have. And I'm like, I don't really want the necklace. Guys, you can keep the necklace. But the leader of the group gave me the powwow drum and said, for this year, you will be the keeper of the powwow drum. Okay. So uh, what are the responsibilities of that? Well, one, you're supposed to listen to the spirit of the powwow drum. Okay. And two, you're supposed to take it to... Ceremonies. Okay, great. So what happens is, going along my merry way, I rearrange my room and put the drum somewhere into my room, and then I get a phone call from someone in the lodge to say, hey, we're having Sweat Lodge. That was normal to me. Um, and they said, can you bring the drum? And I was like, I'm going to have to ask it, so let me call you back. <laughs> and I go to my dad and I say, so the first responsibility is listening to what the drum wants. How do I do that? My dad says, I don't know. Why don't you just hold on to it and ask it? Okay. So I go up to my room. I hold on to this drum. I don't hear anything back. So I go back downstairs and said, Dad, the drum didn't tell me anything. He said, well, how did you feel? So this is where the second point comes in. I have chronic acid reflux. I don't know, I got a bad feeling in my stomach? And he says, don't bring it. OK. I was 13, I couldn't drive. I think my dad just didn't want, want to drive me to this thing, right? So I call back uh, the lady who asked me, and I said, the drum doesn't want to go. And she says, the drum doesn't want to go? I'm like, the drum doesn't want to go. OK. So there I am, very excited. I'm like following my responsibilities. And then you know we go to the, we called her grandmother, she was the leader of this lodge, and she says, I need to talk to you. I was like, oh shit, okay. She pulls me into a room and she said, you disobeyed an elder. And I was like, she's only 55. She's like, well, she's technically an elder. Said, okay, but the drum didn't want to go. And she's like, you listen to it regardless of what the drum says. And I was speechless.
3: Julio um, No, not Julio. Julio. So I'm principally here as a sort of ode to my son, and also because I've had three or four beers. But um, so um, one day, I live in Washington, D.C., and I was returning. Some, I don't even know what I bought. You know how you buy stuff and it comes and you hate it and you bring it right back and you write off all the postage that you've just spent on whatever you had. Anyway, so I went to the, USP, uh, the UPS store, dropped it off, and I'm walking out and I'm thinking, you know, I'm crossing Wisconsin Avenue, which is a really busy uh, street in Washington. I said, you know, I'm going to walk to the intersection because it's a really busy street. So I walk to the intersection, I start walking across in all my glory and one car stops and then another car doesn't. Um, So I'm walking across the street and I feel this breeze and I I turn to my left and I realize this big black Range Rover, the biggest freaking car you've ever seen, right? Is bearing down on me and there's a woman on her cell phone, she has no idea, right, that I'm standing there, and all I could think of was I'm going to die, right. Well the good news is I'm here, and I'll tell you my sum total of injuries was a broken toe and a dislocated jaw. So apparently what I did is I turned, I jumped up on the hood, hence the broken toe, right, and then when she finally realized I was staring at her in the windshield, (laughs) she stopped and I went. and landed on the street so she then gets out of her car and she starts screaming is she dead (laughs) and I'm like oh oh because my jaw is a little disconnected I'm like and I'm thinking oh drama queen right it's all about you I'm lying here bleeding in my favorite sweater that they're about to cut off me right and she's like on the street crying on her phone, you know, yeah, she did. Anyway, so then another really nice lady comes out and she stands over me and she says, Jesus, take her soul. <laughs> and I thought, Ooh, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> And I too am Irish, Julie Rose O'Sullivan. And I'm thinking a Hail Mary would do just fine here. Right? You don't need Jesus, take her soul. <laughs> anyway, so the, the paramedics arrive, and the lady says, hey, lady, you need to pray on the sidewalk. <laughs> so the lady goes and takes her you know, thing to the sidewalk. And then they start um, duct taping me to the board, right? My head with my hair. And the lady para- um, paramedic says, don't tape her hair. And he says, believe me, that's the least of her problems. And I'm like, "Ooh!" Ah. <laughs> 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 so I get to the hospital and they're ultrasounding me. They're like, oh my God, she flew 15 feet. You know, it can't be possible. They're thinking everything's wrong. I didn't even have a bruise on, on the front of my body. So everybody outside is going, can you believe this lady? She broke a toe, and you know, that's it, and blah blah blah. And I'm like, because <laughs> it hurt, right? Anyway, so about a, a month later, I had a heart attack. Because apparently landing that hard on your back crack, can crack the plaque in your heart, and it can give you a clot, right? And so, um, so I am back in the ambulance again, right, and I'm like, no, it's an asthma attack. They said, no, it's a heart attack. And I said, no, 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 it's an asthma attack. They said, no, 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 it's a heart attack. And I'm like, Aah! anyway, um, so my son, I'm a single parent, and in the first ambulance, I finally managed to, like, do this, get my jaw back in order, and called a friend and said, look, Danny's by himself. Um, You've got to go to my house and take care of him because I'm in the ambulance. I just got hit by a car. And he said, are you okay? I said, I just fucking got hit by a car. I'm not okay. (laughs) That conversation repeated itself pretty much verbatim on the occasion of the heart attack. Anyway, so when I got out of the intensive care, it was fine, it was fine, it was fine. It was a small heart attack, they told me. Anyway, so I'm driving my son to school. And for months thereafter, I'd drop him off every day and he'd say, don't die today. And I'd say, ah, oh, Dan, you know, <laughs> thanks. You know, what a nice thought, right? And then finally he told me that um, he had concluded, in fact, that I was indestructible. <laughs> and that was his takeaway. That was gonna be his takeaway from getting hit by a car and from having a heart attack. He said, Mom, you're indestructible. And he got out, and he slammed the door. And I have to tell you, his wisdom and his optimism left me speechless.
0: Next up, Danny O. Ah.
7: Yes, it is, in fact, that, Danny. Uh, <laughs> Little do you know that she actually only did that to sabotage the little competition that we're having now. So, in addition to dying of panic because I can't have liquid courage because I'm only 17, I have to also deal with not crying. Um, but that has nothing to do with my story. So, uh, I go to Quaker School down in D.C., and I don't know if you know anything about the Society of Friends, but the main system of worship is to sit in silence for 45 minutes and let God speak through you. And as my friends over there will attest, you know, some, sometimes teenagers get a little bored after 15 minutes. Uh, after 45 minutes, you know, people are dropping their cell phones, people laugh, people turn their heads. You can see where every little thing, every little sound, in the room is coming from because it's like a sonar. People are just going (laughs) And it's great to watch the teachers zoom in on the troublemakers and say, you're next, buddy, (laughs) I see you. Um, But once you sit in silence for 45 minutes every week with 500 plus people, you begin to appreciate silence more. And I had begun thinking about silence and all its different meanings and what it can feel like when our school invited a former poet laureate named Billy Collins to talk about poetry and what his philosophy about it was. Um, And his philosophy was that the most important part of a poem was the silence of it. Because if you look at a poem as as, as opposed to prose, you can see all this empty space where the writer chose not to say something, where in fact all the meaning does reside because that's where you know, the author chose not to say this and that's where you take the meaning. So I took that kind of thought about silence and applied it to my daily life. So while I was sitting with my friends, I could tell there was a more companionable silence where you're sitting and you're thinking and you're comfortable with everything and your, your deepest thoughts come to the fore and the silence is only briefly interrupted when you share you know, the deepest parts of yourself with people, with your friends, as opposed to when you're speechless and you know, it's just an awkward silence where someone said something so fucking weird and suddenly you're just like, who are you? <laughs> why, am I, why am I sitting at a booth at McDonald's with you? You know, why, why am I here? Um, so going back to meeting, meeting when you're sitting in silence there is the first kind of silence where you're sitting with 500 plus people and you feel comfortable revealing the darkest parts of yourself. And people stand up and they talk about the most tragic things that happen in our lives. You know, uh, an aunt, got cancer and died, or a very close friend got mugged. And you know people staying in the hospital for months at a time and slowly seeing people deteriorate and die in your life. And there is one particular moment where, in the bravest act that I've ever seen, uh, one of my teachers stood up and talked about how isolating it felt to be in the minority at our school. And what he meant by that was, he was one of the very few full-time black teachers at my school. And in the wake of the deaths of Eric Garner and Michael Brown, he felt like no one could really, truly understand what he was going through as a black man. And he sat down and we sat in silence, thinking about that. And afterwards, he was standing outside in the hall kind of crying and he was talking to some of the other teachers and I remember going up to him and there was nothing I could say. There weren't any words that you can express the admiration that I had for him at that moment or the empathy I felt for his pain but also how little I could understand what he was going through. So I did the only thing that I could do which was I gave him a big hug, which now in retrospect was really fucking weird because I'm (laughs) hugging a teacher in front of the entire school and I was speechless.
1: Welcome to the stage, Sam LaBelle.
8: All right, so (laughs) it's really hard to be the last one going, but I'm gonna work through it. Um, (laughs) So um, I think we're pretty open about drugs. I don't do them right now at all. But when I was, (laughs) right, um, okay, so when I was in high school, I like, I totally rebelled and I was like, let's be hippies, like, let's listen to Jimi Hendrix, let's listen to MGMT and like, hope to go to one of their concerts one day. Um, I don't really like them anymore, but whatever. Um, so we used to just be like obsessed with psychedelics we we're like we need to get some psychedelics like, let's get crazy and um, so we were like alright let's do shrooms and uh, yeah so we are sitting there and it was night you're never supposed to do that kind of drug at night um, just because weird shit happens and um, so we were watching Labyrinth with David Bowie, has anybody seen that movie? <laughs> jump, magic don't all right, cool, cool. Okay, awesome. Um, okay, so that's just like a really trippy movie to begin with, and um, probably drug drug inspired. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, we're like seeing rainbows, you know, and I'm just like, shit, <laughs> you know. So you're speechless after that, but I'm not done. Um, okay, so <laughs> so we fall asleep, and my friend wakes up, and she's like, nah! and like slams on the ground, and um, we're like. Oh, Shit. Um, yeah. And she's just like running around like tearing shit up, like knocking stuff over. and it was really scary to deal with. But anyways, um, my best friend's mom came home like halfway through our trip, woke up my friend from his trip, and um, you know, usually like if I ever like do any kind of drug, I'm usually like kind of silent and like people have to like poke me and like, start shaking me be like, Sam, 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 whatever. Um, so, but tonight I wasn't, I wasn't like that. I was like totally talking, I was totally like crazy. Like my mind just like orgasmed. And um, I'm just like sitting on the bed after they're like helping my friend, she's like barfing up shrooms. And it's just crazy, it's really, really bad. And I'm just like sitting on the bed I'm like, Barack Obama, masturbation, like everything, like everything you could possibly think of. And they're just like, what the hell is wrong with that kid? So I'm like walking around, and for some reason, I have this like deal that my friend Samantha is Lady Gaga, and she's like birthing a new race of human beings that are like all cool and really nice, and um, it's just like the end of the world. I'm like, shit, I can go out and drive a car. I'm like Will Smith, and I am Legend. Like I can do anything. Like this is like amazing. And um, no, it's not. It's really not amazing. And um, you know, I was just acting like really crazy. And um, I start, I'm I'm sitting, my friend's there, and for some reason I think that his mom is God and he's Jesus Christ. And I'm like, oh my God, you're saving me. This isn't Salvation Night, this is something else, so whatever. But anyways, um, I'm sitting on his couch and I'm like crying in his arms for like hours and I'm looking outside the window and there's like a street light and I'm like seeing like constellations fly by and I'm like, oh my God. And I look at him and I'm crying and I'm like, do I have to go to work tomorrow? (laughs) And he's like, yes, you have to go to work tomorrow. And I'm just like (laughs) And I just keep crying in his arms and asking him the same question. And then, you know, it hit me. I was like, all right, this is over. This is crazy, this is over. And I walk outside, and I'm just like, "What the fuck was that? Like, that was like the craziest thing ever." And then I see my friend, and she she's the one who's having like the Exorcist type shit going on. And I see her like waking up crying, and I run inside and give her a hug, and she's like, "Oh my god, like, what was that?" Um, and you know, we didn't really have a lot to say. Um, And I just kind of like went home, and I'm like walking around, I'm like, all right, I think it's over, (laughs) I think it's over. And I see my sister in her bed, I'm like, okay, all right. There's still people alive, it's not I Am Legend, like everything's cool. And I like went to sleep, and I woke up in the morning, and I went to work, and uh, that's my story.
0: Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast 2015 summer season. The Mosquito is produced by Tidal Theater Company, Kate Langstaff, and Vanessa Vardabedian, and is sponsored by WOMR 92.1 FM and Bubla's by the Bay restaurant in Provincetown. Find your next opportunity to join us live and tell your story at facebook.com slash Mosquito or via Twitter at Mosquito Story. Listen to all Mosquito podcasts on soundcloud.com slash MosquitoStorySlam. Tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live.